The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Dov Greenberg now presents his lecture, Life is a Climb. Okay, so some time ago, I was in Switzerland, and it was Thursday, and I had a flight Friday morning, okay, Friday morning, I needed to be in Helsinki, Finland for Shabbat. I woke up, the flight was 8 o'clock, I woke up with plenty of time to make the plane. The problem was, during the night, there was an unexpected snowstorm. Tremendous snow and ice. The radio didn't report that the day before. So we, we woke up with plenty of time to make the flight, but not, not for uh, horrible delays. I got to the airport. It was 8 o'clock. The flight was right, so I missed the flight. So it's, it's Friday. So I tell them, I need to be in Helsinki for Shabbat. They say, okay, that's not a problem. I say, but, and I start to tell them the laws of Shabbat. There's sundown, and there's no traveling. They say, okay, listen, we get the picture. I say, this is not a problem. There is another flight leaving in an hour. It's going to stop in Germany for 45 minutes, an hour, and then it's going to go to Helsinki, and you're going to be there before sundown, and you'll have your Shabbat and all the Jewish things. It's all going to work out for you just fine. So I said, thank you very much. So then I said, by the way, I had ordered a kosher meal on the original flight. <laughs> so could we get that on the flight? I didn't need for five hours. I've been up, schlepping. They say, look, we're going to try. We're going to put it into the computer. But we can't guarantee it because we need 24 hours. So we're putting it in, but, you know, we'll see what happens. Fine. So we're on that flight and we're flying. It's already, I'm up for 10 hours. Everybody's eating breakfast. There's nothing. I say, by the way, can I have a kosher meal, please? So they said, did you order a kosher meal? I said, yes. They didn't ask me when, so technically I was still being on the honest side of things. I said, yes, I ordered. So they look in, they say, your name, Mr. Greenberg. They said, there's only one kosher meal on this flight. It's for Mr. Lang. I said, well, is he here? Is he on the flight? It's a shame to throw out a kosher quality meal. You know, this is a shanda to throw out. Is he on the flight? They said, we're not sure. You know, we see he's... I said, I'll tell you, there was an unexpected snowstorm on, in the Alps over there. Maybe this poor lane guy is stuck there. You don't want to throw out... See, if he's not on the flight, I'll take it, and that will be very... So they make announcements. They say, there's a kosher meal for Mr. Ling. Are you here? They weren't sure. But no one took it. He wasn't on the flight. Even. Fine, so they bring me this one kosher meal. They bring it to me. I say, by the way, where was, they had all the papers. I saw they had the manifest. I said, by the way, where was Mr. Lang headed? She said, oh, Germany, Helsinki. So I figured this is a wonderful, blessed day because I'll have lunch on Mr. Lang also now, right? There's no way. So this is how you operate. So you have to think. Uh, so, okay, fine. So we land in Germany. We switch planes. Everything's beautiful according to plan. We're flying. Everybody's having a beautiful lunch. I say, can I have my kosher lunch? Did you order one? Yes, I did. What's your name? So I wanted to expedite the process, you know, I want to help out, could be a contributing member to society. I say, my name is Mr. Ling. I'm Mr. Ling. So they look at the man, they say, look, there's only one kosher meal, but it's for a Mr. Greenberg. <laughs> I 
So I told them there was this unexpected snowstorm. Maybe Greenberg's stuck on the Alps. How do you know? Why didn't you make an announcement? See if he's on the plane. So they start, Mr. Greenberg, nobody moves. He said, here's Ling's, uh, have Ling's lunch. But friends, I share this to you because life's a journey. We're all on a journey. We're all on a journey. We're on a journey. And sometimes the question is a question of identity. Who are we? Not in terms of our name, really, but who are we in terms of, because sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes we have a good day, we wake up and we're inspired, and we're energized, and we feel good. You agree with me? What does that look? You agree? So you have weeks like that. But then, sometimes, we feel down, maybe a bit depressed, uninspired. So as we journey through life, we have about 40 minutes now, 35 minutes. As we journey through life, let's discuss some beautiful teachings from our tradition that really talk to the climb of life. How do we deal with our days of struggle? How do we punch up our mood on days that are challenging, a bit confusing? So let's try to do that in 30 minutes with some beautiful teachings from our tradition, and then we'll do some questions. Okay, you're with me? Okay. So here's the first, uh, something first, uh, an interesting point. There's a, a great architect, his name is Frank Lloyd Wright. I'm from California, he has his fingerprints all over the place in California with houses and buildings, but he has across the world. A lot of his buildings are beautiful. The Guggenheim in, in, in New York is his, very, that's a special building. He has ugly buildings, I think, but we won't, we won't go there. <laughs> but he's a very famous one. So the New York Times did an interview with him. He had a career of like almost 70 years of building. So at the end of his career, he had a very... When he was retiring at the end, they said, Frank, out of all your buildings, everything... He, he didn't retire yet, but he was coming towards the end. They said, out of all of your... Everything, what, is your, what you're most proud of? What's your best achievement, your best creation? So he literally thought in the interview, you can watch him, he thought for about four seconds, and he said, without question, it's what I'm building tomorrow. That's a very special answer. It's a very beautiful answer. In other words, he was not happy with his past achievements. They could be great. They could be historic. They could be truly works of art. But he understood in life that no matter how great our accomplishments were, a person... A great builder needs to have the perspective that tomorrow I'm going to build something more beautiful. Now, he hit on something very Jewish. <laughs> he hit on a very beautiful Jewish idea. Listen closely to this. There is a verse in, our, in the Torah that in Jewish tradition, in the Talmud, it's pretty famous because it's quoted a lot. It's quoted a lot, and here's the verse. I'll give you the few words in Hebrew. God says, through Moses, You human beings, you Jewish people, should go in my ways, God says. Follow me, follow my path. Go in my ways, walk in my ways. Okay, that's the, the verse. It's famous because the, a lot of the commentaries in our tradition Use it to say, what does that mean to walk in God's ways? God's infinite. 
He has all the capacity. We're finite, limited creatures. What does it mean to walk in God's ways? Anybody remember from Hebrew school? What is the meaning of the verse? So in the commentaries, it says, beautiful. It says, just like God is compassionate and loving and forgiving, so a human being should be God-like. You should walk in God's ways, meaning be compassionate and loving and follow God. Okay? And that's how it's classically understood and it's quoted a lot. To be God-like. In Latin, there's a famous phrase, imitato dii, to imitate God. It comes from this verse. To, imit to be God-like, to imitate God. So in this essay that the Lubavitcher Rebbe has on this verse, and this gets to something very relevant and to our topic, he asks a simple question, obvious question. question is, why do we need a model in the sky to be kind and compassionate. We have many models on earth. What does it mean to be like God? And then he quotes, he gets technical about it. He says, there are many other verses in the Torah that tell us to be kind, to love your neighbor. The golden rule, it's right there in the Torah. So why do we need another verse that says you should imitate God, walk in God's ways, if there are many specific verse, verses that talk about many virtues? You with me? You follow? Okay, now listen to the answer. The Rebbe's answer was this, and this is why it's so relevant. He says the verb is the answer. It doesn't say imitate God. What it says is v'halachta, walk in God ways. So what the Rebbe says is, this verse is adding something, a new dimension to every single mitzvah. To everything we do Jewish, this verse is changing it. It's adding a depth to it, the verb. V'halachta bidrachav, every mitzvah, should be a journey. Every mitzvah should be a climb. Every mitzvah should be an exercise in growth. That when I'm doing this command today, I wake up in the morning and I'm praying today, the goal should be the halach of I'm walking in this mitzvah, that means I'm growing in the mitzvah. That I look at the mitzvah and I say, how does this command, how does this call to be more virtuous or more holy, how does it cause me to grow today? Did I grow today when I if I prayed today for 10 minutes or an hour, did I change? Am I a bit different? Did I walk through it? Did I grow through it? So that by the time I finish the mitzvah, I'm a bit of a different person to grow through the mitzvah. In other words, I could wake up and say, yesterday I accomplished many things, and that could all be very true. But deeper is, am I, is this spiritual experience, is this mitzvah a mitzvah where I grow, where I become somebody different? To constantly grow. And if you think about it, it's a key to happiness in life. You want to say, what's a key to happiness? In one word, growth. To constantly grow. Why? Because it doesn't matter what a person achieved in life. All think about your life. You achieved something, even if it was very great. You received a great gift. How long does that happiness last? How long does it last? It lasts a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, a few months. Does it last more? Somebody wins the lottery. Tremendous. How long does the happiness last? Because part of the architecture of a human being is to con consistently grow. So if we're not growing, even if we achieved great things, it could lead to being depressed, to not happy. You say, one second, I should be happy. Look out the blessings I have. Look at what I achieved. But another question is, am I growing? If I'm not growing in the climb, if I'm not moving, if, if, 
If I'm not better today than I was yesterday, or if I'm not trying to do that, then that's already a recipe to be sad. One of the commentators point out that in Hebrew, how do you say happiness? Who knows the happy word for happiness in Hebrew? Simcha. So he says, sameach, to be happy, sameach, to be happy, sameach, shares the same root with sameach, with growth. In Hebrew, the word for happiness and the word for growth are almost identical. They have a similar root. Because a key to happiness is to grow. Kissinger. Kissinger was the Secretary of State in the 70s with Nixon. He's, I think he's, he's 99 years old now, 100. He's still publishing. He's still, you, can see, you can see him interviews on CNN or Fox. They still interview him. He's a, a, a legendary statesman. Kissinger, he's a Jewish fellow. So, but he's a perfectionist, especially with writing and speaking. His books are not only books about politics, but there's literature in his books. So he... Uh, when he was the Secretary of State, he told the ambassador, he said, I want you to write a certain report. There was a deadline, and it was a very complicated report about international affairs. So the ambassador sent in the report. He put in tremendous work, and his whole team did. And he got a very short reply from Kissinger. It was, is this the best you can do? That was very... Okay. So he knew Kissinger's a stickler. So for the next 48 hours, him and his team, they didn't sleep. They sharpened it. They crossed every T, every I. They made it perfect, as best as they could, and they sent it back in. Okay, so now it was really a masterpiece. They sent it into Kissinger. The same curt response. Is this the best you can do? This is Okay, so they figured we'll, we'll give it one last shot, and they really maximize it. They sent it back into Kissinger's office. Same reply again for the third time. So this time the ambassador was really upset. He was angry. He picked up the phone. He said, give me the phone to Kissinger. I need to speak to him right away. So they put Kissinger on the phone. He started to yell at Kissinger. He says, what the heck do you want from me? He said, are you crazy? Do you know how much effort we put into this? We revise, we revise already the third time. I mean, it's a... So Kissinger listens, and the guy finished shouting. Kissinger says, okay, so this time I guess I'm going to read it. <laughs> but we kind of all do that. We think we're giving it our best. Okay, this is it. This is it. But most of the time, when we go through a day, we're not giving it our best at all. We're not giving it our best. We're giving maybe what we think is good. So to really enjoy life, a key to happiness, a key to living our best selves, is to have that understanding that every day we have to at least try to say, how can I be a bit better than I was yesterday in some kind of field, in some place? And if we do that, so then we, we live at a different level. I think Will Roger once said that if, even if you're on the right track, but if you stay there, you get run over, right? So you could be accomplishing things, but it has to be, there has to be a certain movement. By the way, you want to see how interesting, how deep this is in Jewish tradition. In, in the Western world, there are two famous classics about the world to come. You think about afterlife or the world to come, people normally think of what? Peace and tranquility, right? Who says, oh, peace, tranquility, it's the afterlife. So you have Milton and Dante both wrote books about the afterlife, Paradise Lost and the Divine Comedy. These are the two famous classics in the Western world, and they, pick the, they, they depict the next world. But if you read their books, they're rather boring because heaven's a boring place. 
It's pretty boring when everything's just calm and blessings. Their books about hell are much better than their books about paradise. But uh, it's like you almost want to go to hell better than in their paradise. That's how boring it could get. But if you look at the two classic books in the Western world about the afterlife, it's about tranquility and the afterlife. That's what, if you look into the Talmud, you know how the Talmud describes the afterlife? The Talmud says like this. It says, good people, sages, they don't have any rest. There's no rest. There's no tranquility for somebody that's maximizing life. And then the, Tal and then the Talmud quotes a verse. It says, they don't have any rest. A good person, a person living fully, doesn't have any rest. Not in this world. Not in this world. And not in the next world either. There's no rest in the next world. Because they quote a verse that says, a sage is, and a good person is always moving from strength to strength, from one level to the next. So the sage said there's no rest in this world or in the next world. Why? Because they understood that rest is good for a night or for a vacation. For a, you know, a person can have a few hours of rest, a few days. But rest for a person in the final analysis is not heaven, it's hell. So to create an afterlife where there's no growth is not happiness. So if you look in Jewish tradition, even in our afterlife, there's constant growth. You don't slow down, you speed up, according to the Jewish perspective. In other words, you're developing more spiritually. There are images in the, in the, in the Talmud and in Kabbalah of studying divine wisdom, of growing spiritually, of the soul's relationship to good deeds it did on earth, and it grows, relationship to children, and, and the impact it had. So, but that's how you have it. It's a whole different paradigm when you look into Jewish tradition it's not simply to always grow and move in this world, but even in the next world, it's constant growth. It's a different kind of perspective. And if we take it seriously, if we wake up and say, how do I become better today? Then things change. There's a, a Talmud that could be very helpful to this. We, the, the, we won't have time to go through the whole Talmud, but it, the Talmud asks a question that gives us an insight into how we move forward in different areas in life. The Talmud says, when a soul goes back to its maker, so God asks it a few questions. Asks it a few questions. So when people study the Talmud, they think the Talmud's talking about the next world, which obviously part of the Talmud's talking about the next world, but really what the Talmud is talking about is, these are things that Jewish tradition says are important to God so maximize them in this world. It's something to be focused on in this world. There was once a, uh, a preacher who would go around to different uh, towns and hamlets in the south, southern preacher. Who would, the title of his talk was How to Get to Heaven. So he sees in a town, he sees a little Jewish boy, you know, eight years old, ten years old, with a star of David. And he, he was into proselytizing. He wanted to attract this Jewish kid to his belief system. So he says, you should know I'm giving a talk tonight about how to get to heaven. I want to invite you. So the kid says, no, I appreciate it, but I'll pass. So he says, I know you're Jewish. I'll give you a deal. You come, box seat. No, you won't have to pay for, you know, the entrance. We'll let you in for free. So the kid says, nah. Fine. So they're talking. He says, how, how can, you know, in the conversation, this guy tells him he, he's schmoozing with the kid. And before he, he asks him, you know, just to make conversation, he says, I have parishioners and I need to send postcards to them. Where's the post office in town? Because I'm not familiar with this town. So the Jewish kid gave him a whole complex set of directions, right? Left, center, turn on Hamilton. 
So anyways, as this conversation is going, the kid's saying, no, I'm not going to come to your thing. And they have this little friendship. The guy says, I just, I'm curious, this topic affects your life and your next life, all eternity. How come you don't want to come? It's a free lecture and it's very important how to get to heaven. So the kid says, if you're pushing me, I'll tell you. He says, you don't know how to get to the post office. How are you telling people how to get to heaven? So, but when you think about Judaism, it's really not about how to get hev to heaven. It's really how to bring heaven to earth. How do we bring the goodness, the transcendence, the godliness of heaven to earth? And so when the Talmud in this discussion talks about, it's a heavenly thing, but it's really about earth. Prim a primary focus is how do we behave on earth? So the first question the Talmud says God asks is, the language of the Talmud is, Nasasa v'nasata be'emunah, did you conduct your business affairs, honestly, were you a person of integrity? Were you honest? Were you, in, were you a person of integrity? And that's an important question. That's the first question. Okay. But some of the commentaries on the Talmud point out a, a deeper reading of this. That gets very, gets to the heart of our topic here. It's a psychological question. Some of the commentaries read it a bit deeper. They say in addition to were you a person of integrity and honesty? Did you go through life honesty? honestly? That's one way of reading it. Is that the deeper question God is asking is not about honesty to other people. The deeper part of the question is, did you go through life honest and true to the capabilities that God gave you? God says, I gave you capacities. I gave you resources. Did you maximize them? Did you use them? So the first question is not simply were you honest, but did you go through life on a daily basis, not coasting, but really maximizing the gifts I gave you? Were you faithful to those gifts? That's a whole different kind of question. There's a story that illustrates this beautifully. I read it a long time ago in a book. The story goes like this. There was a farmer. His name was Fleming. Farmer Fleming, he was a Scottish farmer, he was very poor. And he was out on his farm in his fields one day, and he hears a child crying. He rushes over to the edge of his farm, and he sees there's like this deep mud, quicksand. And a kid sinking in the quicksand. So he happened to have a shovel with him. So he extends the shovel to the kid, the kid grabs the shovel, and he pulls the kid out, he schleps, saves the kid from a painful death. Fine. The next day, there's a knock on this farmer's door. He opens it up. There's a very wealthy man standing there, a nobleman. He says, you're the farmer that saved my kid yesterday. My kid was running through the forest. He, told me, he says, yes. He says, I want to give you an award. He, wants to, he wanted to give him financial. So the guy was embarrassed. He says, Are you, I, I would, he says I'm not going to take your money. He says, any normal person sees a child who needs help, you rescue the child. What do you, I'm not taking your, your gifts. At that moment during this conversation, the farmer's kid, who is a similar age to this kid he saved, comes to the door. So the nobleman was a, a wise person, and he says, look, I understand you don't want to take money. I, I respect that. I get it. He says, but allow me to do something else. My child, who you saved, has a good very good education, because I pay for top education. Let me gift you, not a monetary, let me sponsor your child's education. Don't deprive your child of that. So the father agreed. So this kid ended up going to medical school in London. 
And he, his name was Alexander. And years later, about 20-something years later, he became the noted discoverer of penicillin, Alexander Fleming. So Alexander Fleming's kid was that child who later developed penicillin. Years later, the nobleman's child got pneumonia, and he was saved by penicillin. So the nobleman was name was Randolph Churchill, and the kid was Winston Churchill. So now I didn't see this story in the Talmud. I didn't see it in the... And there's questions about, could you prove every part of it? So there's a debate if every part of it. So that's a different discussion, but one thing I could tell so if every detail in that story, but it's printed in many places, but one thing I could tell you about the story is morally it's true. Spiritually it's a true story, meaning to say that we could be in a place where all we have, is, we hear a child cry. In other words, something in our environment calls out to help for help. Something. We're in a situation in a home, in a community, in a school, in a shul, okay? And something calls out for your help, and you're the only person who can extend the hand, and you maybe have nothing. You maybe just have a pitchfork or a rake. You don't have great power, great influence, great wealth. But you happen to be in the place God put you, and you happen to have a shovel. Extend it. And it's impossible to know the ripple effect of that small mitzvah of being, if we're faithful to what God gave us, and to the moment we're in, then those are very big moments. So that's what the Talmud is saying. God says, Were you faithful? Did you live a deep life so that you were constantly growing and maximizing the gifts that I gave you? Because if you maximize what I gave you, then the consequences are, you can't calculate. Could, is, is it possible for Fleming to know when he was rescuing this child, that he was really saving his own child, that he was saving humanity from a, a thousand years of a dark age? Was it possible to know what he was doing with his pitchfork at that moment? It's an, you can't know because the future is not knowable. But one thing we do know is that our acts make a difference. All the difference in the world especially when we extend ourselves, especially when we say, I'm going to grow a bit, climb a bit, go that extra. So that's one, one notion that the Talmud says to consider, am I maximizing the gifts I have? Or in other words, am I, every day am I walking, am I growing in the mitzvahs, am I maximizing the gifts that I have? There's a famous story, it's quoted in Hasidic books, but also in secular literature, but it's a Hasidic story about Levi Yitzchak of Barditchev. That he was always very happy and upbeat. Towards the end of his life, one day some of his students came in and they saw he looked down. So they said, why are you you're afraid of the next world? Why, why do you look down? Why do you look depressed? He says, I'll tell you why. He said, I was thinking of one thing that's getting me a bit sad. If God asks me, Zusha, why weren't you like Moses? He says, I'm not afraid of that question. I'll say, did you appear to me in a, burn, a burning bush? Did you? Did, he never appeared to me. Then ask me why I'm not Moses. He says, if you ask me why I wasn't Abraham. If God says, why weren't you like Abraham? I have answers. Say, did you give me the mind you gave Abraham? Did you give me the heart you gave? He says, if, 
God points to any great person in history and says, why weren't you like them? I have answers. I can argue with God and I'll win. He says, but I realize there's one question I don't have an answer to. And that's what's getting me down. He says, what's the question? He said, I'm afraid God's going to say, Zusha, why weren't you like Zusha could be? He said, to that I don't have an answer. Now, this simple story could save you a lot of money in therapy. If there's a therapist, I don't mean to make problems. But many people need a very, very long time in therapy for a simple reason. Because they measure themselves and their life with the wrong yardstick. Know what it is? They measure their life against somebody else. It could be Abraham. It could be, I don't know, somebody on your, uh, some social platform, you know, somebody that you stalk on Facebook or Instagram that you're jealous of, whatever it is. But you measure your family or your life against somebody else. The moment you measure your life against somebody else, you're guaranteed to be depressed. Because God doesn't ask you, Hey, why weren't you like Moses? He never, ever asked that question once. God only asks one question. Zusha, were you Zusha? Rebecca, were you Rebecca? Johnny, were you Johnny? That's the question. So if we compare ourselves to somebody else, depression. But if you, we wake up and say, am I maximizing my potential? Am I being true? Am I growing in this day? Could I, if I could be more, then I ought to be more. That's what God asks of us. But he asks us not to punish us. That is a question because it's a call to responsibility. Do you know what you can accomplish? You know what the powers I gave you? So, by the way, imagine, imagine somebody in this room had the gift of Beethoven, right? And, 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 but they didn't know it. Imagine, there's, you're, imagine you're in that. You're, think of yourself as the gifts of Beethoven in music, right? And, and you never played anything. The only thing you ever picked up was a chauffeur, you know, on Rosh Hashanah. So I, I don't mean to sound sacrilegious, but you would be very depressed. That I could promise you. If you have the gifts of Beethoven in music and the only thing you use is a chauffeur, it's very sad. I mean, a chauffeur's a mitzvah, don't get me wrong. But, but imagine a person, because that's what God is saying. You have tremendous gifts, deep resources, so many blessings, so many lives you can touch. But then to live happily, simcha sameach needs to be tzameach. One neat. So you wake up, you say, how come I'm sad? It's very good you're sad, in a way, because that means you can grow a lot. It's almost like your soul saying, I can do much more. I can grow. I can be. The, 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 this whole idea, you all know, there's a beautiful story in the Torah that you all know, but it's easy to miss the point. You have Pharaoh's daughter, princess of Egypt. She's walking by the Nile River, and what does she hear? She hears a child cry, right? Who's the author of this genocide? Why is the child in the water? Because of her father. Okay, so imagine this is Hitler's daughter. You have to think of that. Now, she's going to extend her arm to save this child, which is a very strange thing. Were you going to save a Jewish child when your father's the author of this slow genocide? Number one. But number two, the Talmud on this story says that if you do a close reading of the text, you'll see that the basket was really beyond her reach. She couldn't really reach it, the Talmud says. So a miracle happened. She extended her arm, and God extended its reach. It went further, much further than it normally had the capacity to, and then she saved Moses. So that, that's what the Talmud says, but here, look how interesting this is. If, if you would have some, the Miami Herald there that morning, right? 
doing a report, doing a report of what was going on. So they would say, Princess of Egypt, here's a child cry. It's beyond her reach. She can't do anything about it. And what is she going to do? Like, if she's realistic, what she should say is, I can't help. There's nothing I can do in this situation. We need to be realistic. What can I do? Who my father is. Plus, I, it's beyond my capacity. I don't have the capacity. So what the Talmud is not merely telling us a miracle. It's telling us a beautiful insight into healthy living, into how special a human being is. What the Talmud is saying is, if you're walking by a river, it means if you're on a stroll Every day in your life, you're walking through life, and you happen to hear somebody crying out for help. It could be a cry of a child, it could be of a neighbor, it could be a spouse, it could be anybody. Somebody needs your help, and you happen to hear it. Very often, the reason why people don't help in life is not because they're indifferent or because they don't care. They do care, but know why they don't help? Because they're realistic, because it's not practical. I would love to help, but I can't make a difference. Sounds familiar? People do that. Pharaoh's daughter hears a child cry. She knows in this world, if, she, if God puts her in a place where she can hear the cry, that means she can do something about it or else she wouldn't hear it. But her arm doesn't extend. What do, I don't have the capacity to make a difference. But I'm going to change. I'm going to change Egyptian culture. I'm going to change my father. Plus my arm. I don't have the strength, the capacity, the influence to make a difference. So what did she do? She says, I don't care. That's not my business. My business is to maximize my potential. God gave me an arm. That's all I have. I don't have an army. I don't have an empire, but I have an arm. And there's a basket out there and I can't reach it. But guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to do whatever I could do. So I'm going to extend my arm as far as it goes. And the Talmud says when a human being says, I'm going to maximize the gifts God gave me, that's when miracles happen. Extend your arm, your pitchfork, your gift, even if it's meager, and then God extends its reach. And what did she do? She actually did change all of civilization. She actually did change all of human history. Because she extended her arm, we're in this room tonight. Not bad for an irrational princess doing something crazy, huh? So that's what the Talmud says. That the Talmud is saying, what our tradition is saying, is a person wakes up in the morning, understand that we have vast capacity, extend our arm, do whatever we could do. It could be a kind word. It could be picking up the phone call. There is, in this room, each of us in this room has somebody today that would smile if we called them. Every person in this room. Just a small example. You can pick up the phone before Shabbat, or a text and say, I was thinking about you, just wanted to say I love you. You just lifted somebody. You just extended your arm and did something for somebody else and you had the capacity and it took 20 seconds. And you have no idea who that lifts and how it lifts. That's just a small example. It could be a friend, a relative. Small acts every day. So when we think about our day, we think, how do I grow? How do we maximize? It's the first question God asks, very powerful. Second question. We'll do one more. We have, we'll do another question. The Talmud says there are four questions. We'll do one more. Second question is, God asks, Kavata itim Did you set aside time every day to study Torah? The texts of our traditions. If, you, if we're constantly going to grow in life, then you need the information. You need... Wisdom, you need divine knowledge and inspiration, a blueprint for life to grow. 
So Torah is a very powerful thing to constantly grow, practically. Do you know what the, uh, the average American, do you know how many hours they spend in a car every year? Somebody guess, how many hours? Huh? Anybody? 2,000? The average, now I asked the question, I'm trying to remember. I, I believe the report I read was 300, I'm sure some do spend that. The report I read said 300 hours. Was it 300? Yeah, 300 hours, that's what it was. So imagine, I'm just giving you an example. Imagine in, in your car, whenever in your car, if there are kids there, forget. <laughs> it's a different discussion. <laughs> I mean, if there are kids, it's a different, but let's say you're in your car for 300 hours. I'm sure some are more. But imagine just in your car, you say, my car, I'm going to turn it into a yeshiva. I'm going to turn my car into a Torah place. So either I'll have podcasts or whatever it is. There's a million ways to do it. But just in my car, 300 extra hours. You know what? That's weeks. You just added weeks of study. Just like that. With one, with one app, with one download, whatever it is. But that's one example of a possibility somebody has to start creating a whole new level of growth in their life in a very, very easy way. It could be in-house. If somebody mows the lawn, you can mow the lawn or you can do dishes, whatever it is. But there are many areas in life where it doesn't even have to be changing your whole schedule, but it could be, I, I'm doing the dishes, I'm mowing the lawn, I'm in the car, now I'm studying the Tanya, you know, a, a piece of Torah. It could be Talmud, it could be Tanya, whatever, whatever piece of Torah you like. So the second question God asks is, are you studying Torah? Now the power of Torah is very, very deep. I'll give you an example. Yeah, 10 minutes. The, the example of Torah is this. The Talmud tells a very beautiful story. It's relevant. Today is, we're going into Shabbat in a few hours. This story is in the tractate of Shabbat. It says that King David turns to God one day and says, God, tell me how many more years I'm going to live. Tell me when I'm going to pass away. I want the information. What day? What year? So God, this is discussions in the Talmud. So God tells David, this is classified information. Since when do we, we don't give this information out. No one knows. This is classified. Again, because if we start releasing the information, everybody's going to start arguing and compromise. It's going to create. Uh... So David says, you could trust me. God, I'm a faithful servant. You can tell me that. So God says, okay, I'm going to tell you part of it. The heaven says, we're going to give you some of the information. We're not going to tell you the year. We're just going to tell you the day of the week. Talmud says that God told David, you're going to pass away on Shabbat. Shabbat's going to be your last day. So David said, okay, thank you very much. It's an interesting story. Now the Talmud continues. David asked this question for a reason. The Talmud says, from that day forward, whenever the sun would set on Friday, David would start studying the Torah in a very beautiful way. And he would study it in such a powerful way, he knew that at the level he was studying, it was a very elevated study, he knew that when the angel of death would be sent to get him, if he's studying Torah, he, he would be immune to it. The angel wouldn't be able to touch him. So this is a very high level of Torah. But the Talmud says that's what he did every Shabbat. From, and he didn't sleep on, on Shabbat. He studied the entire Shabbat. He didn't stop. So then the Talmud says the appointed day came. It was Shabbat. And God tells the angel, David's time is up. Go bring his soul back home. <laughs> he goes and David's studying Torah. He can't get next to him. So it seems from the Talmud, you can't go in heaven. He can't say, I tried. It didn't work. And uh, it seems you have to come with a successful mission. 
So this angel's a bit creative. So he went out into the orchard. David was studying. And next to where David was studying, there was a whole orchard with hills. And so there were steps leading up on, onto one of the hills with ladders. So it says this angel created major noises as if there was a hurricane in the orchard. Unusual. And David realized there was something very strange going on. So it says he got up from his study, but he didn't stop studying. He was studying by heart. So he kept on studying as he was walking. Talking, talking Torah. And he saw where the noise was coming from up the hill on the steps. So the Talmud says he started to walk up the steps. And on one of the steps, the angel did a job. He, maybe you have a carpenter like that. He fixed up the step. And David stepped on it, and it caved in. And the step caved in because it was booby-trapped by the angel, the Talmud says. And David slipped and fell. And as, for a split moment, as he was falling, he was thrown off balance. He lost his concentration. The Talmud says he stopped learning during the fall. He stopped learning. That moment, the angel came in and got his soul. And then the Talmud goes into a legal question if you can bury somebody on Shabbat. It switches from this story to a whole legal issue about the... That's the story. Now, the Talmud, this is a classic story in the Talmud, but the Talmud here is telling us something very beautiful, very relevant. It's not only talking about an ancient story of David. It's telling us something relevant to Jewish life and to our topic here. We'll con con conclude with this. The power of Torah and growth and how it helps us maximize and climb through life in a beautiful way. Who was David in Jewish tradition? David represents two things. In the secular world, when you think of David, most people, you think of like the great warrior, the statue, the famous statue, Michelangelo. David was the muscular, great warrior, military hero. That's true. He was the first to unite Israel, vanquished the enemies, created a kingdom that lasted a thousand years. Till today, Jews sing, sing David Melech Yisrael Chayvikem. David still lives in Jewish life. So David was the, a great politician, a great diplomat, a great warrior. He took on Goliath. His fame and his power is still there today. So you look at David. Who is David? Tre tremendously successful, powerful, diplomatically, physically. Okay, so that's one part of it. In Jewish tradition, David, there's a whole other part of David. Who was David? Everybody knows David was the author of the, most of the Psalms are from David. Most of Jewish prayer, David is the author. David's the great spiritual singer of the Jewish people, the great composer of prayer. David was a tremendous Torah scholar. He was, sat on the Supreme Court in ancient Israel. He was one of the great scholars of his day. In his last decades, most of the time he studied Torah. He was one of the great legal minds of his time. There are laws in the Talmud that come from David. So in Jewish tradition, David is two things. He's the man of power in the physical world, but he's also the spiritual person, the Torah scholar, the great person of prayer. Two things. That's David. So what is the Talmud saying? The Talmud, in a way, is saying David reflects a healthy Jewish community, the healthy Jewish people, or the healthy Jew. A Jew that's involved with the world, that's successful in whatever it is. It could be education, law, medicine, business, whatever the Jew's job is, the Jews in, in the world, and even very successful, maybe climbing the highest echelons, the highest ladders of success in the physical world. That's one part of what the Jews called on to do. And that's special. But then there's a whole other part of being a Jew, and that is our connection to God, our tradition, our mitzvah, our Torah. It's living a beautiful Jewish life with morals and ethics and holiness. So it's to go to business, but we do so with a few minutes of prayer and tefillin. 
It's to celebrate a beautiful week, but to end it with the lights of candles and Shabbat. A Jew, the Jewish people, and an individual Jew is a combination of what David is. To be that beautiful blend of two things, to maximize the spiritual and the physical. So what the Talmud is saying is, as long as the Jewish person is out there in the world and being very successful, which today in the Western world, the Jewish community is very successful. That's very special. And that reflects part of what a Jew's called on to do. That's David-like. As long as David the Jew climbs the ladder of success, but is studying Torah, is articulating Torah, is connected to the tradition, then nothing on earth could destroy that Jew. That joy always lives. The Jewish community will always live, and the individual Jew has new vitality. So you climb and climb, and if as you climb, you are studying Torah, you are articulating Torah, so then you're able to maximize your impact in the world, and you do so in a healthy, growing way as a Jew. But if the Jew says, I'm going to climb the ladder, but I'm going to allow my tradition to stop, I'm going to fall and falter in terms of Jewish education, in terms of constant Jewish growth, I'm not going to study Torah. I'll be detached from my heritage. I'll let that anthropy within time, the Jewish community or the individual then Jewishly disappears. And so that's what the Talmud is telling us in a very beautiful kind of way, that to be a Jew that is constantly living and growing and climbing and being successful in life is to recognize that happiness is constantly to grow and to constantly to grow is to maximize our potential every single day to recognize that God asks us not to be somebody else, but to be who He gifted us to be. To remember that when we maximize our gifts, it could be a pitchfork or a hand. All God tells us to do every day is to use the gifts I gave you. And when we do that, we literally not only enrich our life, but we change all of Jewish history. And when we do so connected to our tradition, when we grow in the field of Torah as well, then that gives us the strength and the joy to allow that to translate into the rest of our life so we're constantly growing every single day. Amen. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.